This episode of Promised Land uses audio clips that contain language and subject matter that are graphic in nature. Listener discretion is advised. I've never lied to you. Your Bible is full of lies. Your sky god makes no sense. If he was all perfect, why don't he come down and do something? If he can heal everybody in a minute, why doesn't he heal them all? Why do he make all these different races to fight and to kill? Why does he bring some into the world born blind? America, 1973. Christian America. Jehovah's America. Bible America, 1973. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain by following me. Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you deny yourself? Why don't you say yes to this cause and no to that slave system? I thank you. I thank you. I thank you because my words are spirit and my words are life. This is a revolution that will heal you. This is a father that will save you. This is one that will shepherd you through every storm. Father Divine became God to millions, both black and white. To the followers of his international kingdom of peace movement, he was the second coming of Christ, but to non-believers, he was a mystery. Despite the lavishness of his palatial 73-acre country estate, Woodmont, his followers insist that Father Divine never personally profited from the movement, that he had in fact never exploited the so-called God game. Father Divine was a very mysterious man all the way back to birth. With no records, there isn't much to know about his early life. There are many debates as to his birth name, with many of those records wiped. According to an FBI file, he is listed as George Baker, alias God. There was a George Baker Jr. born in Rockville, Maryland to parents who were freed African-American slaves, which many people point to as Father Divine being this George Baker Jr. Father Divine would attend Baptist Church and would sometimes preach around the early 1900s. It was here that he met another man claiming to be God. He soon left the Baptist Church to follow as the quote messenger for this man, Father Jehovah. It didn't take long for him to part ways with Father Jehovah as he did not believe more than one man could be God and he was quite certain that he himself was God. He began his preaching in the South until run-ins with law enforcement found him on a chain gang. He decided to take his preaching north starting in Brooklyn, New York, where he named himself Reverend Major Jealous Divine. Major to show authority and jealous from a Bible scripture where the Lord says he is a quote, jealous God. Most of Father Divine's followers were elderly African-American women, but he was starting to gain more of a diverse following once he arrived in Saville, New York. He would host banquets to attract new members with the promise of training to help them find jobs. He attracted many people from both the African-American and white communities. As his following grew, he would call his group the Peace Mission. Eventually, he would purchase apartment complexes in Harlem, New York for communal living for his followers. He would promise all needs would be met, including shelter, training for jobs, and even job placement. This was huge for the lower income community, as some could not afford to live 
let alone have the training to find proper jobs. He would have members pull together their salaries for the community and in exchange provide a home, clothing, food, and family. Father Divine's first wife, Penaniah, eventually grew ill and passed away. Not long after, he married 21-year-old Edna Rose Richings, aka Sweet Angel Divine, who he claimed was the reincarnation of his first wife, Mother Divine. Father Divine claimed that he was able to heal his wife and save her from death, and since this clearly did not work, he had to find a way to explain this to his followers. So he chose reincarnation. The peace mission eventually ended up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a huge gothic manner. He made public headlines as a healer in the circuits, as well as having tens of thousands of followers truly believing he was God. Through Jim Jones's connections, he learned of Father Divine and how he was doing everything that Jones was doing, only on a bigger and better scale. He decided to reach out to Father Divine to learn how he was able to have such a large following in hopes to expand his own mission. Because Jones had a lot of accomplishments at this time, Father Divine was inclined to accept Jones's request for a visit as Father Divine was always happy to show off his achievements to those who looked up to him and wanted to follow in his footsteps. Over the next three years, Jones would visit Father Divine regularly taking note on how Father Divine managed to have his followers be so devout to him in every way. He soon started to take some of Father Divine's ways onto himself and his members, particularly calling himself and Marcelin mother and father, as well as dressing in better suits and looking the part. He was fascinated by the Peace Mission's plan of the Promised Land Project, which was a self-sustaining farmland that would provide for members. Jones knew that Father Divine was old and would more than likely die soon, so he planned to wait until he passed away and use the story of reincarnation of Mother Divine for himself. He would show up to the peace mission after Father Divine had died and claim that he was the reincarnation of Father Divine and therefore absorb the peace mission into the people's temple. For now it was just a waiting game until that time came. In the 1950s, segregation was still a very big issue in the United States of America, and it was hard for African American pastors to get anything accomplished for their congregations. This is where Jim Jones was really able to get noticed as a white preacher for a congregation of primarily African American members. He may not have moved mountains with segregation at this point, but he was able to accomplish more for his community than any of the other African American preachers in the area which brought attention to the People's Temple and brought in a large amount of new members, both African-American and white, some of which would later become Jones's most trusted committee members. Outside of the church, Jones made sure to have plenty of church activities for his members. He arranged zoo outings, picnics, dinners at his home, talent shows, and activities for the children. He made sure that activities included all of his members to show both white and African-American members the importance of accepting everyone, no matter their race, education, or wealth, that everyone was equal. It was around this time when Jones's mother, Lynetta, had heard about her son and all of his accomplishments. She wasn't going to stay in Richmond when her son was gaining publicity for being the great man she saw in her vision many years before. 
she packed all her belongings and moved from Richmond to Indianapolis, where she would live with Jim and Marcelin. Jim and Marcelin had already adopted a nine-year-old daughter named Agnes, and soon after Lynetta moved in, Jim and Marcelin decided they wanted more children of their own. Marcelin, knowing that she had health issues that would cause pregnancy complications, brought the idea up to Jim that it would be wonderful to adopt children of all different races, a quote, rainbow family. Jim and Marcelin knew adopting a child from another race would be difficult in Indianapolis, so they flew to California where they adopted two Korean orphans, a four-year-old girl named Stephanie and a two-year-old boy they named Lou. Thank you girls, nice to see you girls again. And now we have a minister and his wife here from back east, and uh, we're so happy to have them receive two children from our orphanage today. And uh, I want them to come right now. Mr. and Mrs. Jones, God bless you. Ms. Jones, I understand. God bless you, Ma'am and Reverend Jones. And I understand that uh, you're a registered nurse. Yes, is that right? Yes, well, Lorraine Jost, our director, is a, a registered nurse. And I know that's going to be a big help with yes, those children. It has been already. Don't you kind of uh, spend part of your time ministering to the sick? Yes. Um, our church has a nursing home, a home for the aged, and I work as administrator. Wasn't well, that wonderful? Uh, uh, this pastor and his, his uh, church uh, and his lovely wife uh, uh, operate a, a home for the aged. Isn't that right? right? And the needy. And we're so glad. And, and Mr. Uh, uh, I want to call you. Uh, Long, but it's Jones. I don't know why I want to call you Reverend Long, but uh, I wonder if you could give us just a little of your background, how you got into uh, the, the ministry, and something about your church we're interested in, and uh, your work back there. Surely your hands are full. This lady directs a home for the aged, and her husband has a church, and he operates it without salary. He receives no salary. Is that right? That's correct. And you make uh, your, you have your other income from other sources. Mm -hmm. And so, how did you get into all this? And now you want two babies. Just a desire to help people primarily is the reason. We've had a great interest in breaking down barriers between all races and nations and creeds. And that's the primary reason, Brother Jordan, that we have entered into the field. I see. We've certainly been pleased to come in contact with your work. We might say that when we were looking for children, we went to different agencies and all of them had such fabulous prices connected with the adoption part and your agency had no charge, it was just merely the transportation of the children. You were interested in the welfare of the human being. We felt we wanted to tell that to the television audience. Well, thank you so much. We didn't ask for that, but we certainly appreciate it because people just imagine that it's black market and you're making a fabulous sum of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know why we want to adopt children? We want them to have a normal home, that's one thing, okay. especially with uh, Christian parents and love, but we also want another thing. We want to vacate our orphanage as fast as we can to receive those who are dying on the streets and that are taken to the city hall, 10 or 15 a day, the city hall there in Seoul, Korea, no place to go. And all the orphanages are full and running over and beyond capacity, and your taking two will make it possible for us uh, to receive some more orphanage, uh, orphans, and oh, it's so wonderful to have you here, and we'll put those two little babies in your arms in just a, a few minutes, and uh, we got a little more time, Tor. Not long after the adoption, Marcelin announced that she was pregnant. She was extremely happy to find out that she was pregnant, but knew that she would have a rough pregnancy, so she made sure to keep up with her health and rest when she was able to. This wasn't very hard, 
as women members of the People's Temple were more than happy to help out with their children, Agnes, Stephanie, and Lou, anytime Marceline needed. On the way home from one of the temple's outings to the zoo, a drunk driver had driven head-on into one of the temple vehicles, killing Jim and Marceline's daughter Stephanie instantly. That night, Marceline stayed home to rest as she was coming to the end of her pregnancy. She had a vision of Stephanie knocking on the door and telling Marceline that Oboke needed mommy and daddy. Marceline took Stephanie inside and put her to bed, then went to bed herself. Jim came home at dawn to inform Marceline of the tragic news. Marceline immediately said it couldn't be true because Stephanie came home that night before and was asleep in her bed. Jim took Marceline to Stephanie's room to show her an empty bed, and they sadly had to come to terms that their daughter had passed away and started making funeral arrangements. Three weeks after Stephanie's death, Marceline gave birth to a baby boy. They named him Stephen, with an A, in memory of their daughter Stephanie. The word oboke from Marceline's vision stuck in both Jim and Marceline's minds and they decided to contact the California Adoption Agency where they had adopted Stephanie and Lou to ask about it. This is when they learned that Stephanie had a six-year-old sister named Aboki. They took Marceline's vision as a sign and immediately flew out and adopted Aboki and renamed her Suzanne. In 1961, Jim and Marceline adopted an African-American infant and named him James Warren Jones Jr. Jim Jr. would be the first African-American child to be adopted by a white family in the whole state of Indiana at the time. And with this, their rainbow family felt complete. You're the first African-American or Negro back in 1960 to be adopted by a Caucasian family. You know, there's a sense of pride to that, that you started, you were a part of a, a new way of thinking. I, I have the best brothers and sisters I could ever have. The Rainbow Family, the original Rainbow Family, if you don't mind me saying that. But I got, I got, I had great brothers and sisters growing up. Don't get me wrong, we felt like brothers and sisters. But the closeness and the solidarity between us was better than any bond because it wasn't blood. It was a bond of uh, of commitment that that we were a family. At the same time, Indianapolis announced that the position for the Human Rights Commission director was available and applications were now being taken. Jones saw this as a great opportunity and applied. He won by a landslide as he was the only applicant. So in 1961, the mayor of Indianapolis named Jim Jones the director of the Human Rights Commission and Jim quickly got to work on major changes. Jones set out to make a difference in the city of Indianapolis as far as segregation was concerned. In 1961, a bill was passed to allow equal opportunity for state employment and state-run facilities, but there was still the issue of personally owned businesses. Local restaurants would not allow African Americans to dine. They wouldn't come out and refuse them, but they simply would state that reservations were needed in advance and they would tell them there was no availability for the times requested. Jones decided to take African-American temple members with him and Marceline to dinner and almost always would get the same treatment of being turned away. If by some chance they were allowed to dine, the service and food was less than poor. In response, Jones would go back to these restaurants the next day alone 
to speak to the owner about allowing African Americans to eat at restaurants, and he was always turned away. But this didn't stop him. He would politely come back day in and day out asking for change. If this continued not to work, he would bring temple members, both African American and white, to peacefully protest outside of these restaurants during business hours. This would cause people trying to eat at the restaurant to have to walk through the crowd to dine and would impact the restaurant financially. After the restaurants were feeling the financial hit, Jones would come back and ask the restaurant to allow African American diners and assure the owner that they would benefit by telling them he would personally bring in more customers. When the owners would agree, Jones would round up members from the temple to dine on off hours when the restaurants were usually not busy, filling all the seats and he would pay for everyone to eat. When these restaurants allowed diners from all races to eat, People's Temple would then distribute newsletters praising these establishments for breaking the walls of segregation, giving these restaurants free publicity. It ended up being a win-win for both integration and business owners. After the success with restaurants, Jones took things a step farther by asking establishments to hire people of all races. He would assure hardworking employees to business owners. He took a page out of Father Divine's book and would take temple members who are in hard times and find them work explaining to them that his reputation would be on the line and they would need to work hard for their new employers. In turn, the temple members were thankful for the opportunity and worked hard at their jobs, again providing a great relationship between the People's Temple and small businesses throughout Indianapolis, as well as making steps in integration. The truth is hard. It's hard. I'm preaching my heart out, but look at that 93-year-old before you do and see how healthy he looks. Look at what I do for my people. He was in jail, and they were stuck up several thousand-dollar bails on him, and I paid it that minute, and I said, you won't go back, and he didn't. That's the kind of father I am. What kind of father have you been serving lately? Does your churches have any love? Does your preacher talking about the sky God? Will he give you a ride? Will he give you any buses? Has he given you any of those homes? Has he given you help? Does he go into the court and the jails and set you free? Does his, does his sky Jesus do you any good? No! I'm the only one that will help you. I'm the only one that cares about you. I'm the only one that loves you. Word spread fast, and Jones's name was everywhere as the man who was able to make a real difference in social equality. People all over knew his name, not just those in the People's Temple, as the man who was making real change in Indianapolis. If Jim Jones's story ended here, he would have most likely gone down in history as one of the major game changers in social equality and integration. But as we all know, things slowly started to take a turn. Jones was so involved in every aspect of the temple that he quickly found he had little if any time to sleep. He often worked from sun up throughout the day and into the early morning hours every day of the week. With his lack of trust in most people, he felt he needed to have his hand in every aspect of the church and also know everything that was going on. The lack of sleep and all the work started to make Jones grow paranoid. Whenever he had to step away from the temple, he would have one of the members named Ron Haldman preside in place for his sermons. He had a hand-picked team of associate pastors, Russell Winberg, Ross Case, and Archie Eimas. 
but he didn't trust them enough to preside over the church as much as Ron Haldman. At the same time, he started to expect a lot from church members. All members were to be in attendance to every church service, any extracurricular activities the temple had, and also put in volunteer work for the church's social service programs without fail. They were told to watch each other and report anyone if they were found to fail in compliance. If members were to fail, they were made to stand in front of the congregation and endure criticism for their wrongdoings. You were not to question anything, just do as you were instructed. This didn't sit well with some members and the People's Temple lost a small amount of its congregation with these new expectations. With the temple losing members, Jones grew a new form of paranoia. He didn't like people leaving. He took it personally anytime it happened and would contact each person trying to get them back. He would stress that it's God's will that they came back to the temple and it was all for a reason and they shouldn't leave as it would be against what God wants from them. In the wake of disaster, you are about to enter upon probably the most difficult and yet most important period of your life, when to escape the effects of radioactive fallout for perhaps as long as the next two weeks, you will be deprived of all the conveniences of modern life. When you will live under crowded conditions, almost elbow to elbow with your neighbor. When your diet, your personal hygiene, and other habits will undergo drastic change until the passage of time has decayed radioactive substances and fallout to a point where it will be safe for you to take up your life where you left it. In 1961, the threat of nuclear war was very real. Jones took to capitalizing on this threat as he felt it was time to take the People's Temple out of Indianapolis and couldn't come up with a better reason than nuclear holocaust to assure his members would follow. It was then that he had a prophetic vision. In this vision, Chicago would be the target of a nuclear attack, and Indianapolis would suffer the fallout of this attack, leaving it a wasteland. If we have a nuclear holocaust with an earth tremor that will split off all through the San Andreas Fault and drop everything west of the San Andreas Fault into the sea, then we're prepared because I've got a cavern deep, deep in the mountains that can take care of every one of you. No fallout can get to you. No radiation can get to you. You're warm. It's constant temperature, 55 to 62 degrees all year long down there where I've got that. And we've got food for that. Say, well, how many emergencies can there be? There can be that emergency. It's definitely going to take place on 116th at 309. Our people, those that were in the meeting when it came by revelation know exactly the day, the month, the minute, the year. I will tell everyone about it two weeks before. But in the meantime, there could be a dictatorship that would sweep in. So we have to be prepared to take our flight to the valley in the case of great desolation or the apocalypse or the Armageddon that would spring forth in a nuclear hell, as Peter said, when the elements melt with a fervent heat. We have to be prepared for that, but we also have to be prepared to go to other places in the world if a dictatorship takes over. Because I told you, and I never have broke my word, I told you that not one of my children is going to end up in a concentration camp. I said they'll have to kill us all first. Now I mean that. I mean that's one place we draw the line. 
We've been slaves once in this country. We've been in chains once in this country. They've sold us on the slave market once, but baby, they're not going to do it again. With the seed planted with temple members, Jones took off to travel to find a location safe from the nuclear holocaust that would inevitably wipe out the People's Temple should they remain in Indianapolis. Jones traveled to Cuba, British Guyana, and then to Hawaii with no success. He then returned back to Indianapolis when an article from Esquire magazine was released with the quote, nine places in the world to hide when it came to nuclear threats. These places were as follows, Eureka, California, Cork, Ireland, Guadalajara, Mexico, Chile, Central Valley, Mendoza, Argentina, Belo Horizonte, Brazil, Tananarive, Madagascar, Melbourne, Australia, and Christchurch, New Zealand. With this new information, Jones quickly began preparing. He weighed his odds with each location. He had high hopes for California, but thought that moving temple members to another country would strengthen his chances of keeping his members loyal as they would be far away from family members and friends who could persuade them to leave. He quickly arranged for his mother Lynetta and Marceline's side of the family to take control of the nursing homes. Russell Winberg would continue as acting pastor over the church and money from the People's Temple's accounts would be regularly sent to Brazil where Jones hoped to quickly establish a new location for the People's Temple. He then resigned as director of the Human Relations Committee, packed up his family, and left for Brazil. Before arriving in Brazil, Jones had a stop in Mexico, where he was able to oddly meet up with Archie Yimus, where Archie informed Jones that Winberg was changing the way he was preaching from more political stances to more Bible-based preaching, and also inviting evangelical preachers to guest speak at the church, which was something that Jones was totally against. He urged Jones to return to Indianapolis as he felt that Winberg was trying to take over the People's Temple. But with Jones's vision of nuclear apocalypse, he pushed forward with Brazil, even though his paranoia was ramped up from this news. He told Eimas to return to Indianapolis and keep a close eye on Winberg, and to report any further news. Jones first stopped in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Belo Horizonte was very impoverished. The Joneses were low on funds. Being low on funds, the Jones rented a small home, and they immediately ran into their first problem. No one spoke English. They had difficulties doing anything, even as small as mailing letters at the post office. Jones later met a man named Ed Malman, who was a missionary from the U.S. and could speak Portuguese. He and Malman became very close, so close that Malman's daughter Bonnie lived with Jones during their time in Belo Horizonte. Jones found it difficult to accomplish much in getting himself noticed due to the lack of funds. The Joneses had yet to receive a single dollar sent to them from the People's Temple, as was arranged. Jones had to work part-time jobs but only made enough to support the family's living and food expenses, nowhere near enough to start social programs to get himself noticed like he was able to do in Indianapolis. The Beam family soon moved to Brazil with the Joneses. They were loyal Temple family, and Jack Beam soon grew to be one of Jones's most trusted members. The Beams too found Brazil unforgiving. 
struggling to work, they ended up moving back to Indianapolis in 1963. Not long after the Beams left Belo Horizonte, the Joneses moved on to Rio de Janeiro. Jones quickly found work as an English teacher at an American school. Even with his newfound job, it was impossible to make any headway in real social changes. There were so many other missionaries in Brazil that were better funded that Jones fell through the cracks in every way. Jones later recalled a very important moment for him that ended with an orphanage receiving a large donation of $5,000. The way he told this story is he met a woman who was married to a prominent diplomat. She offered Jones $5,000 to have sex with her. He recalled that sometimes you have to go against what you think is immoral to achieve the end. So with Marceline's approval, he had sex with this woman and was able to provide the $5,000 to the orphanage the Joneses were helping. Everything I did with my body was for socialist purpose. But my dear beloved, and you know all about it, don't worry, I've got, you know who I've got. I ain't got nobody running around loose because I never fucked nobody out of the cause. And when I did for money, to get money to save you, there sure wasn't no danger of any baby coming. I took all the precautions in the world, three and four rubbers. I know some of you are uncomfortable with that shit because you don't see that as a revolutionary act. But that's easier to die on a cross, child. I'd rather die on a cross than fuck that old white bitch down in South America. I'd rather die on a cross than have to fuck her from sunup to sundown. I'd rather die on a cross. Dying on a cross is easy. That Jesus shit's easy. I'd like to die when I have to face some of these things. We've got a lot of folk in that camp right now. When they look at these irresponsible, uncaring, unfeeling, who don't want to know anything, won't try to learn anything, and won't even be alert to listen. Dying shit, that's easy. Don't talk to me about dying. I'd die on the cross in you. You want me to die on the cross, you can all put the nails there. That's easy, because it's over with then. But it's just living shit and going to bed with old white bitches to raise money so that some of you could eat when you were wasting all your goddamn money. And you need to feel a lot of guilt and be pouring it out to you new folk coming. All the money you wasted, all the money you didn't turn in, all the money you cheated this cause. We'd have a plenty of housing. There would be two people to every house if we had all that goddamn money. Even if this story was true, this donation was not making the changes he needed. He wasn't being seen as a man who was making real change for the community. And word from Indianapolis was Winberg was losing members fast and changing things rapidly. Malman offered to go back to America to fill in for Jones so that Jones could stay in Brazil and work towards his end goal. Malman later arrived at the People's Temple with no one being informed of this decision in advance. Winberg, outraged, left the church bringing a few dozen members with him. It wasn't long after Malman took the church that Jones was getting word that Malman, too, was preaching a Bible-based message that was against what Jones wanted. Jones knew he had no choice but to return to the People's Temple. He had to save what was left of the church before it fell apart. He thought for sure he could just come back and everyone would feel they were saved by the man who made all the social changes and would step right back into the light he left in. But he was sadly very mistaken. While the Jones family had been in Brazil, big social changes had happened in Indianapolis. The Civil Rights Commission was formed and segregation was soon becoming a thing of the past. Discrimination was outlawed in Indianapolis in social settings as well as housing. More opportunities were available for people of other races. The need for Jim Jones to work for them was no longer as pressing as there was an entire commission to work for people now. 
Jones could have had a prominent role in these major social changes had he not left for Brazil two years prior. Temple funding was low as well as members. Because of the lack of members, the need for the building the People's Temple was in was no longer there. Even though it was very embarrassing for Jim Jones, they were forced to move into a smaller building. This infuriated Jones as he felt he was losing power. He then chose to manifest his frustrations in other ways. A few years earlier, Jones purchased radio station time to quote Bible scriptures. But now he ranted on how the Bible was propaganda and how he was the new prophet. After being warned numerous times about what he was saying, the radio station had no choice but to remove him from his time slot. Jones even started changing the way he was speaking to his congregation. He always believed in reincarnation, but he never spoke about it to members. He always claimed himself to be a great man, but he never came out and claimed to be anything but Father Jones. He now spoke of the real God existing in the mind of people on earth. He never actually declared himself being God, but he made it very clear in his sermons what he wanted people to believe. We maintain the church and let them have their religion as much as they need it. But he said, we cannot get them out of their religion. Well, the fact is, to be humble, some of us are not out of it. But, and then you got that paranormal factor that does kind of confuse things. It confuses me when I can raise somebody up like Rose and stop our young comrade Williams from being crippled. Paralyzed. I don't mean crippled, paralyzed. Hey, that troubles me. And why three people die in three years, like I mentioned in paraparliamentary procedure, and each die on March 10th, three members of parliament in one small country. Very weird, but that doesn't make me believe there's any loving God. No, there's a long jump from my power to heal to believe there's something loving up there. Because if there'd been something loving up there, they'd have left us alone and never made us take the trip in the first place. Jones knew his time was up in Indianapolis and that it was time to move the temple. He truly believed the impending nuclear holocaust was imminent, so he went back to the Esquire article to revisit those possible locations for safety. He knew the time wasn't ready for a move outside of the United States, so he settled on Eureka, California. He sent members to scout the location with the beams to a location outside of Oakland and Ross Case to Ukiah, which was the halfway point between Eureka and San Francisco. Jones also made trips out to visit these locations. On one visit while out to lunch with Jack Beam, they overheard a conversation from another table about a church named the Golden Rule. After speaking with these new board members, Jones learned that they had land in Ukiah, and most of the members were elderly. With the promise of new younger faces, he proposed a merge of the Golden Rule and People's Temple. Golden Rule agreed with the positive outlook of fresh new faces. The stipulation was that the members of the People's Temple would not be allowed to live on the church's land, but find shelter in the city of Ukiah and find work. The church would be shared by both congregations during this trial run. Jones was enthusiastic over the news and knew it wouldn't be long before he could take over and be able to absorb the 200 members of the Golden Rule. Now it was the time to convince members to make the move from Indiana to California. Jones reminded members of all he and the church had done for them, and that now it was time for them to give back by making the sacrifice of moving to Ukiah. 
He told them of the beautiful climate and better living. He told women who suffered from domestic abuse how they could free themselves by putting distance between their situation. Those who were on low income housing would have better opportunities and better living. He also stressed the impending nuclear attack from his vision by giving it a date of July 1967. So if members didn't come, they would inevitably be killed by the fallout. So in the summer of 1965, Jones and 90 of his members left in a caravan on their journey across the United States to their new home in Ukiah. But Ukiah wasn't everything that Jones made it out to be. Promised Land is a cool-down media podcast. All audio clips for Promised Land come from the Jonestown Institute. For more information, visit their website at jonestown.sdsu.edu. Follow us on social media at Promised Land Cast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.